As Ian said at the beginning of, uh, of the service, we've been beginning to, to think our way through uh, a short letter that Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote to Christians in uh, the first century. And as we are listening, what we're trying to do and reading it together, we're trying to ask, if Paul were writing to us, what might he want us to be aware of? And so if you have a Bible and you're able to follow with me, I'm going to read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm going to read the whole of that first chapter. Last week we looked at the first part of it, but I'm going to read the whole of that chapter. And uh, it's not a long first chapter. It's written from Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, and we continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he's chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we don't need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what happened when we visited you. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. We'll pause there and try and, in the midst of it, just try and understand what Paul saying and what might we need to hear? Paul was delighted. And this is a chapter, and you can't miss it really. This is a chapter that is not telling the church to do anything, but he's just thanking God that something is happening. What is he really delighted about? Paul had this idea, and it's a simple idea, that with, when Jesus came, Jesus came into a world that was fundamentally broken, that things were not right. And that had happened because as humanity as a whole had decided that effectively they knew better than God. That they didn't want to live in relationship with a God who actually created and sustains this world, but they'd rather have independence and do it themselves. And Jesus comes into this world, the result of that, by the way, is we make a mess of things. And the gospel is the good news that God did something about our sin that got us into the mess in the first place. And what he did was he came in himself as Jesus. He said, give me all your rubbish. I will carry it. I'll take your sin. And in place of that, you can be free. And he died and rose again and is living as the Lord over this still broken world, but a world that God is in the process of wanting to fix. That's what Paul 
was delighted about. And so what happens is, in individuals, people like me and you, we still encounter that. You come in and you go, I'm in a mess, I've messed it up. I took, I made bad decisions, I took wrong decisions. I've really, really just taken independence too far and that has left me stranded. And the hope is this, the good news is this, that God doesn't leave us in your hopelessness. But the moment you say, actually, I'm in a mess here, God says, that's the moment I can actually work with you. And what he's done in your life, as he renews you and recreates you and puts you back together again, bit by bit, is what he wants to do for the whole world. That's the gospel. Now, I'm kind of telling you what you know. But it never stops being good news. But this is the point. Jesus didn't come so that people would go to church. <laughs> all right? Jesus didn't come so that the outcome would be we'd all go to church and feel a little bit better. Jesus came to declare that actually there's something that God wants to do with the whole world, and he wants to use us. He wants us to gather us into his action. So when he looks, when Paul looks at what's gone on in this little town city called Thessalonica in modern-day Greece, when he looks at what's going on there, he says, I'm giving thanks to God because something's amazing has happened in that Greek city. God's got hold of some of you, and it's like the gospel is just scattering throughout the world. It's not going to stop because God loves the world. And the ultimate is not that we go to church. But the ultimate is that we are wrapped into God's purpose. And it's today as well. Me and you. Now, it's easy, isn't it, to forget all that. To forget, well, you don't forget it. Kind of like you park it. But in the meantime, well, we, we come to church. <laughs> and if, you know, if the, if the singing's good and Neil's not too boring and the coffee's good and we have the biscuits aren't all eaten by the children before we get there, it's like, and nobody falls out with each other, then it's like, it's a good day. But it's kind of like reminding one another, there's more. This is like a pit stop in the race that you're involved with, that God wants you to run for him. This is the pit stop, literally. Some of you need to change your tires because it's like there's wet weather out there and you've got the wrong tires on. You need to be geared up. Some of you need to be refueled. Some of you need to be... I've run out of analogies. Um, <laughs> I don't watch F1. <laughs> don't call them out. <laughs> this is just a pit stop in the ongoing race that you're involved with. Paul writes to a people and he said... When you heard the gospel, some things happened. And I want to explain and just remind you what he's written. He said, this is how we knew the gospel had been received. This is how we know that the good news has actually been put into place. He said, when you heard the gospel, three things. You turned from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his son from heaven. That's at the end of that chapter. He goes, actually, when we came to you, that was the result. That's what changed everything around. That's what made you a people who were able to be used for God's purpose. You turned from idols. You began to serve the living and true God. And you're waiting for his son from heaven. Idols are, uh, it's sort of like you read that and you think, mm, 
and I don't know what image comes to your mind, but some of you will have been abroad and you might have seen uh, different cultures where they have different expressions of faith and in different expressions of, well, what makes the world tick and how do you make things happen? And it's easy to see it in other cultures, but it's not so easy to see it in our own. What are our own idols? One of the things that idols do, really, is they're a substitute for God. And one of the biggest lies that idols tell us is that it's all about you and it's all about me. Idols promise that if you go down their track, you can make life work for you better. Which is why it's like a poor substitute for God. Because God says, if you come down my track, I'll use you for my glory. Idols say, if you come down my track, I'll, I'll give you what you really want. It's very different. Do you, do you, does that communicate? You see, essentially, what we're saying is that it's easy, it's too easy for the world to feel like it's revolving around me. I was trying to think, what in our culture are the symbols or the signs of idolatry? And I've got a few, and they're in no particular order, and it's not that these are more important than other things, but I was just trying to think. I find myself sometimes queuing up behind people in supermarkets or in the newsagent or wherever, and I'm watching people who, without going into any detail, but clearly look like they've not got much money, in fact, I was in a shop not so long ago where I saw uh, someone take out their benefits that had been paid into their account, which wasn't much. And then out of that, paid £10 on lottery tickets. And I kind of wanted to tap her on the shoulder and go, save you £10. But there's something, isn't there, in our culture, and the lottery is a really interesting symbol of something that grips our heart. Now, there's not one of us probably in the room. There might be one of us or two of us who feel at this point a little bit more holy than the rest, but the rest of us have all played the game. If we won the lottery, what would we do? Yeah? I played it. I don't know how to put a lottery ticket on. Even I've played it. Do you know what I mean? And I've worked out that I'd need a lot of money to make it change my life. Do you know what I mean? These are not the days when a million pounds were a lot. They've gone. (laughs) We've all played that game. And if you remember when the lottery was introduced, how did they sell it to us? It was the big finger in the sky that said, it could be you. Your life could change. And so, week by week, lots of people say, actually, I can't afford not to do the lottery. Some of you might know the feeling of, if I stop now, what happens if next week my numbers come up? It's a sign that actually the lottery or the, excuse the word, the gambling of what I can't really afford has gripped me and I can't afford to stop now. Because they promised me something. They said my life could change. And the idol of money that promises you so much then says, but don't, don't stop giving to me. You know how bad you would feel if next week your numbers came up and it wasn't you anymore. (laughs) If you really want to know how that feels, tap the person on the shoulder or tap yourself on the shoulder and say, instead of putting £10 on the lottery, give it away. 
And people go, I can't give it away. That's ridiculous. Why is it ridiculous? I was thinking about things like um, simple things, easy things, really easy targets, but the horoscopes. These devices that are supposed to tell you how life will work out, because what they're telling you is that your fate is in the stars. It's not actually in any good God who knows you and cares for you. It's almost been fixed. Or it's in the borrowing of money so that you can look like you're successful. It's in the life of debt because you've expended more than you could in order to look like you're doing okay. Or it's in the continual search for new relationships because actually I can't be on my own. All of these idols around us that say it's actually about you. And in Thessalonica, the, um, the sign that these people, that God had done something, was they said, I'm not living my life according to those rules anymore. I'm not living my life according to those rules. The rest of Thessalonica might live like that, but I'm living differently. Not because I'm better, but because actually I've realized there's a God who loves me. There's a God who loves me. There's a God who provides for me. There's a God who's called me something bigger. There's a God who's actually at work here. I don't need to live according to your rules. In fact, he said, and I said last week that Paul always plays with these three ideas of faith, hope, and love. He said, you have turned to, from the idols. You have had the faith in God. You've turned away from the past. And you are serving the true and living God, which is Really, what does it mean to serve God? It actually means to love both God and your neighbor. What does God want of you? What does it mean to serve God? It means you learn to love the people who are around you. Expensively, sacrificially, costly, it means to love them. Not just your own family or your own friends, but those that you serve. Those that you will meet tomorrow morning this time at this time tomorrow morning? How do you love the people you're working with? How do you do so in a way that isn't sacrificial? And thirdly, he says, you have chosen to wait for the Savior from heaven. You're living with hope, recognizing you can't make everything different yourself. But actually, hope says... One day, Jesus will be revealed to everybody. And then everybody will see that Jesus is Lord. And in the meantime, I'm living like that. I'm kind of living ahead of the day. I'm kind of recognizing that my life and our lives and the life for the world is, it can be different because one day everybody will see, ah, so the idols were false. Everybody will see, ah, so God was good and he loved us. One day everyone will see, so Jesus was ruling. In the meantime, We need to live like that. I wonder, and if we had time, we might well do this, but I wonder what it would look like for you to wake up in the morning and say, okay, faith, love, and hope. Those are going to be my key watchwords today, wherever I find myself. I'm going to believe that the world, the system the world says cannot change, 
can actually be changed. I'm going to love people around me, and I'm going to act in my job, in my work, in my, uh, my, my activities, wherever I find myself. I'm actively going to love the people that are around me. And I'm going to hope, live in hope, that this is not everything. Now, just in case that sounds like hard work, and like, oh, flip, we've got a load more to do now. I came to church and I was feeling okay, but now you put more burdens on me. Paul says, actually, what's the change point? What happens? And he uses, uh, he explains what happened when the gospel came. He said, when the gospel came, our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. Our gospel came to you not simply with words. It's not like clever words or manipulative words or spin words, but actually Paul's saying what's happening is God's at work wanting to do something. And he highlights at least three things. He talks about the idea when God's involved, God wants to come with power. And with the Holy Spirit, this sense of the relational aspect, that God wants to come really close to you, and with deep conviction, this sense that deep down you go, it's true. Some of you know how that feels, that last one, because uh, you found yourself in church at times crying and kind of not knowing why. Sometimes you know why you're crying, sometimes you don't know why you're crying. Sometimes you find yourself in church and going, there's something that's touching me deep, really deep inside. In fact, I know people, and uh, you might well be in the room, some of you go, I don't want to go to church because if I come, I'm going to cry. I'd rather, if I'm, gonna, if I'm gonna cry, I'll stay at home. And actually, what are we talking about there? Well, hopefully more than emotionalism. Hopefully what we're talking about is actually that God's at work with deep conviction saying, actually, I wanna do something deep in your life. There's nothing wrong with tears. And for those of you that don't cry, there's nothing wrong with not crying. <laughs> but there is something about, God, can I open up my life enough to allow you close? You all know the sense of, and I'm not, this isn't a reference to Shirley who's got her arms crossed at this point, but you, you all know the psychological feeling of sitting somewhere with your arms crossed saying, okay, impress me, go on, try. Yeah, 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 go on, no, no, I'm not impressed. And, um, and you, <laughs> some of you are going, I'm stung, I'm, I'm not going to change. <laughs> Matt's just moved in his chair, I'm not going to change. <laughs> but you know psychologically how that feels. And actually, there is something that when we come into the presence of God that says, can I open up? Can I allow God to get close to me? And I tell you who this is the biggest challenge for. This is not a challenge for those of you that are fairly new to faith. This is a challenge for those of you that have been walking the walk for years. People like me. Because <laughs> you've seen enough You've heard enough, you've said enough, you've experienced enough. And it's easy, easy simply to say this is just service as normal, service as usual, service as usual. And I think that what Paul was expecting was that both in the lives of believers and in the lives of non-believers, we would experience something from outside ourselves. There's something more than our intellect. There's something more than our usual. There's a God who... I want to say intervenes, but I also want to say interferes. 
There's a God who steps in and goes, actually, I could surprise you. And the attitude isn't then to sit going, okay, go on then. (laughs) See if you can surprise me, God. The attitude is, actually, I expect that God will intervene. And so I'm going to try and live with my eyes open to what God's doing. Where are the voices behind the voices? Where are the day-by-day events that you go, I think God was there. Where are the things that you think, I've got no other explanation except God did something. Where are the things that you say, God, if you don't do something, I'm absolutely snookered. Please, God, may you show us your power. It's what we sang earlier, isn't it? Our gospel came not simply with words, but with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. I was chatting to folks this week about this, and some folks said to me, yeah, but the problem is, sometimes, you know, the thing that stops me just stepping out is a a fear of, well, what if I say, well, in a work context, if I can, I'm going to pray for you, and then God doesn't do anything. I'm going to look stupid, and will God be thought less well of? So can we just sort of protect God's reputation somehow? And of course, the challenge for us, the challenge for me is, do you believe in a gospel that comes not just with words, but with power? In my own life, there's times when I quite... I'm not ashamed to say I have to go back and pray, God, I think I've got it too sewn up again. I think I've got it all sorted. Can you just unsort it for me? Can you surprise me? Can you do something that would just throw me a little bit? I'm tired of being in control. And some of us might go, yeah, but I'm kind of scared of that as well. (laughs) I'm scared of what might happen. I'm not the sort of person who, you might say, I'm not easily open. But God doesn't seem to say, well, I can only do it with some people. Paul was really delighted that the gospel was spreading and that these little pockets of the agents of the kingdom were growing in places like Thessalonica and places like Salford. People who'd said yes to Jesus and God would want to use. And he still is. And it's not that you're on a recruitment drive for the church. It's that you're called to share your life, and your life is what God has touched. But when we come together, that's that sense of, God, will you show your power here as well? And finally, Paul said, because of all of that, you became imitators of me. You became an apprentice of me. It's like Paul said, I came in you and you watched the way I was and then you got it yourself. You saw, Paul said, that when I was with you, I I did have joy and it was really pressured. But you saw that and you imitated me. You didn't say, I'm only going to follow Jesus if it makes my life better. Actually, in the midst of a situation where it became more difficult, you imitated me. And then he said, and in turn, other people started to imitate you. It's kind of that thing, isn't it, that I wonder how many of you would say, if someone's talking to you about faith and saying, what has it been like, what's being a Christian like? How many of you would have the conversation saying, well, just watch me? <laughs> Most of us would start the conversation, but don't watch me. 
because I'm not very good at it. But actually, Paul encourages everyone who's following Jesus to go, if you want to know, just watch what I do, because that's what it looks like. Uh, it raises the big challenge, doesn't it? <laughs> if they did, what would they turn out like? Well, they turn out like you. That's the actual honest truth. And Paul said, that's actually what's happened. Paul said, you became like me. And then other churches in that region of Greece became like you. It's kind of a challenge, isn't it? It's kind of a challenge. Our lives are the demonstration of the truth we proclaim. And so the challenge is, have we got anything worth imitating? Do you deal with stress differently than anybody else? Do you deal with your work colleagues any differently than anyone else? Do you deal with your family, with all their idiosyncrasies, any differently than anyone else? Watch how I deal with the realities of life, because that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. So, let me finish, but let me just bring it together a bit, if I can. What's the good news? The good news is that God's acted for the sake of the world. The good news is that he's included you in on this. He said to you, I want you to be part of my program for the world. And then he says, because I've, I've visited you, I've come to you, and you've experienced something, and there's more but I want to use you more. And his challenge is, could you become someone who imitates? So individually, this time tomorrow, can other people imitate the way you handle and navigate life? But even as a whole church, can we do stuff that would become something worth copying? Can we be a people who are worth imitating? Can we be a people who are not afraid of actually enabling other people to find faith? Can it happen here? Well, it can't happen just with words. It has to happen with the, the power of the Spirit being evidenced amongst us. But there's nothing different between us and Thessalonica. I'm challenged by this first chapter because it's deeply practical. When you first read it, you think, mm, there's not much there. But actually, Paul is writing to churches like our own and saying, God wants to do so much more in and through you because he loves the world. He loves the world. 